Had a good weekend. I mean, weather's good. Duff hunting's here. Georgia football's back. And Colorado football. Can I get an amen? Am I, is anyone else not impressed with old primetime Deion Sanders? I've just been, okay, y'all go home. Uh, good gracious. So, yeah, football's back. Everyone missed a bunch of doves yesterday. Talked to a couple people. Uh, the average rate I'm seeing is 12% that you guys hit 12% of doves. Is that, is that accurate? Anybody hit more than that? No? Nobody? Good. Good job. One, one guy, the Alabama fan, so I don't trust anything he says. Um, so yeah, as we're flipping Matthew chapter 7, last quick important thing, because I was trying to have fun with y'all, but evidently y'all just want to hear the Bible, so let's do it. Um, welcome some new partners here. So uh, this morning, Stephen and Leah Long are here. You can stand up. Y'all are pretty people. It's okay. Uh, they are now official partners, so thank you guys. Uh, if you want more information about church partnership, what that looks like, please come talk to me. Any of the elders, um, every month or so we do um, a Discover Redeemer class where we go through the entire process. Um, or if you just want it like they did, we just got together this morning and talked through it and worked through it, heard their testimonies affirmed by the elders. So uh, it's not that complicated of a process. If you want more information about that, uh, please come talk to me or any of the elders. We'd love to walk you through that. So um, as we're getting into Matthew 7, one of the things that was coming to my mind this week uh, was TV. So, so my family is not massive TV watchers, uh, but for us growing up, it just seemed like, and maybe you're this way, 8, 8, 8 30, 9 o'clock, the entire family came and sat down around the TV. Anyone else do that? We watched like the shows, like uh, Seventh Heaven, right? Touched by an Angel, anyone else? I mean, we were watching those, and then we started watching uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. Those were the good old days. We were not allowed to watch The Simpsons, because that was like devil-worshipping stuff, um, or Married with Children. Anyone else? Like, that was, you're an apostate if you watch that kind of stuff in my house growing up. But uh, we, we would all sit around and watch these TVs, and it was good, but, but at our house, it's really not on that often. But it always cracks me up when it is. Uh, because one of our kids will walk by and there'll be one of those infomercials just blaring about how to get rich and, and you can do all this and it's your money, use it when you want it, those kind of commercials. Um, anyone else singing the J.G. Wentworth song? Um, and so my kids, one of them will come to me and say, Dad, Dad, listen, uh, this guy said we can get rich, let's do it. Like, like they, he said it, let's do it, let's get rich. It's that easy, right? N- no kid, it's not. It's not that simple. It's not that, but they're trying to sell you something. And so my kids have no framework for how the world really works and and what's required to gain any kind of wealth. And they just hear someone on the TV say, um, it's a guy in a big thing singing, it's your money, use it when you want it. Like, dad, let's get our money and use it how we want it. They they know none the wiser. And what we're going to see this morning in scripture is that we are, if we're not careful, those kind of kids in a spiritual realm where we hear things happening around us and we know none the wiser and we just assume that's truth. And sometimes it comes from people that stand in pulpits that look good, act right, preach the Bible, but it's not actually the Bible. And we don't know none the wiser, we can't discern what's taking place. And sometimes it's, it's what we hear from the world. We have all these messages coming in to us and what Jesus is going to push us in is very simply this. Do we have the lenses, the biblical worldview then, to spot what's true and what's not. Because if we don't, we're going to end up in destruction. We're going to follow the wide road that leads to destruction. But if we do, 
We understand God's will, God's scriptures, then we're going to stay on the narrow road. So that's the scripture we're going to see this morning in Matthew 7, uh, 13 through 20. So if you have a copy of God's word, go ahead and stand with me. Matthew 7, 13 through 20. When, when we finish, I haven't prefaced this in a while, when we finish reading God's word together, I will say this is the word of the Lord and the church responds, thanks be to God, right? This isn't some cultish thing, but this is us acknowledging this is God's holy word. That's why we're standing out of reverence for it and us buying into it together. So Matthew 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And the hosts who enter it Enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, or grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you illuminate the scriptures to our minds this morning? This is such a needed text for us to think through, consider, and examine in our own hearts. Where have we been led astray? Where are we listening to the falsehoods around us? And where do we need to return back to the straight and narrow? So, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. It's your name we pray. Amen. Now, we, we started the series of Matthew way back when, but we actually started within the Beatitudes on Easter. So we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, starting with the Beatitudes all the way back in Easter. So this is Jesus, one of his most important, most famous sermons. He sits down at the beginning of his ministry, and he's really laying out what we keep using this word week after week, uh, citizens of the kingdom. What does it look like then for, if you're going to follow Jesus, what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom? We know what it means to be citizens of America. We know the laws, the rules, what we do, what we can't do, how we live, the, the, what we used to do, the, the hometown nation pride. Uh, but what Jesus is teaching is what does it look like to have that idea, but for the kingdom, for what Jesus is starting and establishing. And so now we started at Easter, we're ending the Sermon on the Mount over the next couple of weeks. And so just remember, it is a sermon. So now we're getting to the point of the response. Jesus is starting to lay out what we would understand in our context of more of the altar call, right? He's, he's landing the plane. He's talking about, okay, in light of all that I've preached, all that I've teached, and a lot of theologians, commentators would say he was teaching for over two hours, two to three hours. So don't ever complain about a long sermon again, all right? I'll go straight, Jesus, I'll be like Jesus and preach two or three hours. Y'all want that? Corey said yes, so I'm going to go today. Uh, so Jesus preaching two to three hours, he's starting to land the plane, and so he starts asking some really hard questions. But we have to remember who it is that he's preaching to, because these, these questions, these commands, these uh, ending thoughts in the sermon are going to land differently depending on who's hearing it. So you have the Jewish leaders, right, the, the ones that are in authority, the scribes, the Pharisees that are watching over this and really just getting frustrated at what's happening. Who is this man that's teaching with the authority of God? Who is this man that thinks 
that he can preach and teach in this kind of way? On whom's authority is he doing this, right? And then you have the other Jews in the, in the audience that have been looking and awaiting for the Messiah. They've been waiting for God to come, but in their minds, the ruler, the Messiah, was going to show up on a white horse, was going to rule and reign, and not necessarily show up like Jesus did. So they're listening uh, really with an ear in tune to, is this, is this actually him? Is this the guy? Then you have the Gentiles, right, that, that those that have not welcomed into the Jewish faith, that were not supposed to be there, that were probably getting side-eyes the entire time from the Jewish people going, man, you, you can't be here. You know nothing of the Jewish uh, traditions of what's happening here. But the whole time they're just leaning in, intrigued at the teaching of Jesus, And then lastly, no matter Jew or Gentile, you had a bunch of people in the audience that had heard that Jesus was healing, heard that Jesus was casting out demons, heard all these miracles that Jesus were doing, and they were just bandwagoners, right? They were just showing up. They wanted to be a part of what was happening, but they had no real interest or intent of following this guy, Jesus. All they wanted was what he could give them. And so as Jesus is starting to end, he starts addressing these individual people, But he's going to give a really hard command right here, a really hard pressing into, you've listened to this entire sermon, here's what you're supposed to do. Now, in in the law of preaching and teaching and and public presentation, the the first ask that you ask from somebody is supposed to be pretty light, right? It's supposed to be something universal, something that everyone would agree on, and then you start building up and you start ramping up until the hard thing, right? This is is a sales gimmick. This is a thing that I'm going to get you to say yes a couple of times so that when I get you to the hard question, then you'll already say yes because you're used to it. Are you all familiar with this? If you ever sat in a timeshare presentation, that's what they do. I'm just here for the $50 Olive Garden gift card. Leave me alone. I'm not going to sign anything, right? So that's what's happening in this moment. But Jesus is not salesy. He's not gimmicky. He's not any of that. He goes straight for the jugular. If you're going to be citizens of the kingdom, this is what it looks like. So as he closes, Jesus is telling them that to follow him is going to be difficult to count the cost. He's not trying to manipulate or convince or like, please come be on my team. He's, he's doing quite the opposite. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be extremely difficult to count the cost. But you can go the easy way. But the easy way is going to lead to destruction. So this morning, we have to ask a question in light of what Jesus has asked us. Are you truly following Jesus through the narrow gate? Are we truly following Jesus through the narrow gate or a false prophet the easy way that's going to lead to destruction? So have we had that moment or have those moments of actually counting the cost, considering, yes, I'm going to leave everything and follow Jesus. This is what Jesus is asking and requiring of citizens of the kingdom. So first, let's look at the narrow gate. We see this starting in verse 13, that the narrow gate means leaving it all at the door. So the narrow gate literally means leave it all at the door. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so as Jesus is concluding to this teaching to the massive crowd, this is the invitation that he leaves. This is the beginning of it. Follow me through the narrow gate. And the narrow gate really isn't a what, but it's a who. 
He's saying, if you want to get to the Father, if you want eternal life, I am the narrow gate that you have to go through. There's no other way to the Father except through me. So if you want to come after me, this is what you get. You get eternity forever. But if you don't want to follow me, if you don't want to enter through the narrow gate, then keep going, but the way is going to lead you to destruction. We see this parallel text in John 10 that he elaborates a little bit when he says, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And all who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. What a beautiful message. Jesus said, here I am. If you want the green pastures, if you want eternal life, if you want all that I have to offer, then just come through me. But it's going to be hard and it's going to cost you something. If you don't want that, then, then there's another way. I'm not pleading with you. I'm stating this is the good news of the gospel. So we have to ask the question, why is the gate so narrow? I mean, why is Jesus saying it's so narrow? Or maybe some of your translations say straight. Why is it to get eternal life, to follow after Jesus, to spend eternity with him, it has to be such a narrow way? And for this, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Beatitudes, we have to look back at what first started all of this, all the way back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Because Jesus starts, and in, in as a masterful teacher, he starts and ends with the same message. Look back with me at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is what's taking place. Alexander McLaren, who was a great preacher over a hundred years ago, likened this to the first Beatitudes. He said on one side, one post is simply spiritual bankruptcy, which we saw in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones that know that we cannot do this. The ones that are fully, keenly aware of their own sin, their own struggles, their own shortcomings. That is one side of the gate that we're walking through. And then the other side, McLaren would say, is verse 4, those who mourn over their sin. So the way to get into heaven starts with, the way that gets through the narrow gate starts with, on one hand, your sin, being so aware of your shortcomings and sins, knowing that there's no way that God could love you, knowing that there's no way that you can make it into heaven, knowing that there's nothing you've deserved or done to deserve eternity with him forever, but he still does and he still makes a way. And so on one hand, there's that post. On the other hand, there's the mourning the deprav- of your depravity, the, the weeping over your sin, the understanding that you are a sinful, sinner, wretchful person in front of a holy and righteous God. And Jesus is saying, if you want to walk, if you want to follow after me, it starts with those first two Beatitudes. It starts with understanding your sin and mourning after your sin. That's where true life begins. That's where true life is found. And we see the same parallel over in Luke 13. He went on being Jesus. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter into the narrow door. So when we see this word strive in the Greek, it's agonizmai. Does that sound similar to our word agonize? So, so Jesus says, you, you have to strive. There has to be agony with you entering into the gate. And let's be clear what he's saying. He's not saying that you have to work for your own salvation. 
That's not what Jesus is teaching. But what he is teaching is that we have to come to grips with the fact that we cannot save ourselves. That we're not good enough. We will never be good enough. There's nothing we can do to earn the love of God. He loves us so much so that he sent Christ to take our place on the cross. And we have to follow him. But unless we truly believe that, we're going to still try to work and earn our own salvation. One theologian says, entering the narrow gate is still difficult because the opposition of human pride, our natural love of sin, the opposition of Satan and the world in his control, and all who battle against in the pursuit of eternity. So we see that Jesus says the ones that find this are very few. The ones that come to this true revelation, this true realization that I am so wicked and so depraved, there's nothing I can do to fix my own self. And Jesus is saying, it's not till we get to that moment till we can enter into the narrow gate. And I love this idea, the imagery of the narrow gate, because what it really means is that to follow Christ, to become a Christ follower, it really is Jesus plus nothing. The imagery of this narrowness means that you cannot take anything with you. You cannot take your comfort, you cannot take your wealth, you cannot take Jesus plus, yeah, I, w- I want to be a Christian, I want to be a Christ follower as long as it doesn't interfere with my vacation time. I, I want to be a Christ follower as long as Jesus doesn't try to tell me how to raise my kids. I, I want to be a Christ follower as long as it's still comfortable and socially acceptable. There's none of those Jesus plus moments here. The gate is narrow. If we're going to follow after it, we've realized that we can do nothing apart from his good work in our lives. And from that attitude, we're going to follow after him. Jesus teaches this often and often. Matthew 8, uh, Jesus goes through, we'll study this in a couple weeks, um, but he calls this disciple to follow him. And, and what does the man say? Lord, let me go bury my father. Jesus goes, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let the dead bury the dead. Come follow after me. We, we all know the story of the rich young ruler, right, that comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus starts going through the law. Well, you know, brother, you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so the man comes back, well, I've done all of that, so I must be good. And Jesus perceives this. It says, yes, but I know that you're a wealthy man. Go sell everything. And it has very little to do with material wealth, right? We, we understand that. Jesus is saying, you cannot have another God besides me. You cannot take anything with you. Jesus plus nothing. And what was the response of the man? He went away sad. He went away sad because that means that he'd built all this life and he wants to follow Jesus, but he also wants to follow his money. That he wants to follow Jesus, but he also wants to follow his comfort. And Jesus is going, no, friend, the gate is narrow. And it's Jesus plus nothing. And so we see this in John 7, which we read a little bit ago, but, but Jesus keeps going because there, there's got to be a part here where you're going, okay, but I thought the gospel was good news. Like, I'm supposed to give up everything, but for what? If the gate is narrow, what, what is the end of this? So this is what Jesus says. John 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastures. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is saying, trust me. 
The gate is narrow, but what's on the other side is worth it. That you're going to have a God that loves you. You're going to have the Holy Spirit inside of you. The pastures are going to be green. He's never going to leave you or forsake you, and you're going to be able to spend eternity with him. Your life will become immeasurably better, not in this present world per se, but because you have the Spirit of God residing in you, you're going to have a peace that surpasses understanding. You're going to have a strength that comes from no man. Even this morning, talking to uh, our new partners over here, they were recounting just uh, different things in their life, and Leah said so prophetically, I do don't see how people go through hardship in their life apart from having Jesus as their Savior. And it's so true. How does the world survive through some of these moments without knowing Christ is with them? And he goes before them, and he's going to come after them, and he's with them in this moment. But this all starts, Jesus is saying, with a narrow gate. Then on one hand, understanding our sin, and the other hand, uh, weeping and mourning over our sin. But until our sin be bitter, Christ not be sweet, says Edwards. Until we get to the grips of this, we will never truly understand. But I think where we are as a cultural moment is is really quite the opposite. It's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 13. So point number two, I'm trying to get better. I know you type A'ers love when I say point number one. And then pause and give you time to write. And point number two. So I'm trying to get a little better. I can just start preaching and forget about that. But point number two. The wide gate of cultural Christianity leads to death. The wide gate of cultural Christianity is what leads to death. Look back with me at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So we have to see Jesus is already making this distinction that there's going to be a lot over here. Don't be enamored by the many. Don't be enamored by the masses. Don't be enamored by the crowds. But you should really talk, think, focus on the few. Because the few are the ones that are actually doing it Right, so Jesus has in mind this massive city entrance. Back in in their day, uh, city center was everything. And so you have this massive city entrance and and what we would kind of know is like a boulevard or or a grand entry. And that's where all the tourists, that's where all the traders, all of them would come into this first gate. And this is what Jesus is thinking, where you could come in with cart after cart after cart of stuff, of comfort, of luxury, that you didn't have to leave anything at the gate. You came with all of your baggage, all of your stuff, all of your belongings, and Jesus is having this in his mind when he goes, but that's not the way of Christianity. That's not the way of citizens of the kingdom live. That's you saying, I want Jesus, but I still want all of this other stuff. And Jesus is going, that's just not, that cannot happen. Now, before we start getting into, like, man, that's just so narrow-minded. First, the cross is narrow. But second, Let's take it out of scripture and just think real quick for a second. If you men are getting married and you say, no, no, I'm, I'm with you, I'm in till death do us part, but I'm also bringing all my old girlfriends with me. Anybody going through with that wedding? Ludicrous, right? So before we start getting high and mighty, and man, Jesus is kind of being a little selfish right there, isn't he? Absolutely not. 
Because no way would we be okay with that in a marriage, but we come into this covenantal relationship with Christ our Savior. He's going, no, no, if you want the easy way, if you want to bring all those girlfriends with you, if you want to bring all your wealth and you want to share me, I'm just one of your passions, but I'm not the passion, that way is going to lead to destruction. And church, I just want us to be aware of that is the cultural moment that we live in. I praise God that we live in an area and a day and age where the gospel saturation is everywhere. That there's not a shortness of healthy churches within a two-hour drive of here that preach the gospel, that live faithfully. But what this has done over time is created a bunch of cultural Christians. And a cultural Christian is nothing more than a nominal believer that says, yeah, yeah, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but I also, I mean, he, he's on like the spectrum, right? Like some weeks he might be here, the other weeks he might be here, but like, man, I, mean, I, I love Jesus. I, I love Jesus. I love the church, but sometimes I love these things more. And Jesus is going, man, that's, that's the wide road that's going to lead to destruction, and so let me just read kind of some descriptions that one commentator wrote about how do we know? How do we know if we're, we're more cultural Christian or how do we know that we've counted the cost? We've said Jesus plus nothing and we're actually following after Jesus. Here's, here's a few. That we deny the inspiration of Scripture or parts of Scripture. Now again, straight out of the gate, everybody in the room that would go, absolutely not. I love God's Word. God's Word's infallible and God's Word's perfect. But has there ever been a moment or moments where you say, I know Scripture says this, but the, the road away from orthodoxy starts with this word of but. But if Jesus knew my situation, he'd be okay with this sin that I'm living in. But if Jesus knew what I was going through, or I know that's what the Bible says, I just don't care. Friends, that is not the narrow road. That is the wide road that's going to lead to destruction. Ignoring or downplaying true repentance is the first step towards knowing God. Focus on love and acceptance to the exclusion of his teachings on hell, obedience, and self-sacrifice. I think, I think this is what has happened when I talk about the moment of cultural Christianity. And when, I, when you hear me, and I know, I know, it's Labor Day, pastor, keep it short, we want to we wanna go, I, I get it. But when you hear me go on rants, this is probably one of my most passionate things. Because I've seen evangelism in the church over the last 50 to 100 years do more damage than anything else. That what a lot of guys like me, pastors in my position, care very little about actual true discipleship and developing people's souls. What they care about is looking really important and special to their friends. And man, we had this many salvations, and we had this many baptisms, and our church has seen revival. And then 10 years later, none of them are there. So what they preached to them was not the true gospel. What they saw was not true, genuine repentance. They were caught up in the hype of the moment and they fell away to the easy road where who knows what their eternity is going to look like because they got saved one night at a revival, but nothing happened afterwards. And this is where we see this moment of cultural Christianity, that we redefine scriptural truths to accommodate culture, that we understand that Jesus to be a primary social reformer rather than God in the flesh, that we d- deny or minimize Jesus' claim that he is the only way that we perform enough religious activities to gain a sense of well-being without true devotion to Jesus. Sh- should I read that one again? That we perform enough religious activities to gain a sense of well-being without a true devotion to Jesus. That we choose a church based 
on any or all of the above listings. That we choose the church based on simple preferences, not whether they actually teach the word of God. And we see this happen over and over again. The day and age that we live in is littered in people choosing the wide road that leads to destruction, all the while thinking that they're actually doing the right thing. And, and Jesus is warning of this. And it's something if we put proper lenses on, as I already mentioned about the wedding example, the audacity that we have. I, I mean, none of us would let our kids get away with this, Right? None of us, if we, if we were bosses, would let our employees get away with this. Or none of us, if we were employees, would ever do this to our boss, that our boss looks us square in the face and say, I need you to do this. And then you turn around and walk away and never do it and have zero intentions of doing it. And so when Jesus says, come and follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Go and make disciples. You go, that, that's great for the pastor. He gets paid to do that. I'm never actually going to do that. Now, again, we would never be that frank in our words to say that out loud, but in our hearts, we all do that. My friends, that is cultural Christianity. That is, I'm, I'm going to come to church. I want to be, be saved. I want to be a part of it, but like, I'm not actually going to do all that Scripture is required to me. That's just too much. If, if Jesus knew what I was going through and, and trying to balance everything, he would, he would give me a pass. I, I know he would. I don't, I don't think he will. Scripture is clear what he's asking us to do. And, and we see this call all throughout Scripture. Moses in Deuteronomy 30 says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set you before life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So we all have the choice. We have the narrow gate and the wide gate. In Deuteronomy, Moses is saying, you can choose life or you can choose death, and I implore you to choose life. We see the same thing out of Joshua, who was the disciple of Moses, right? Joshua leads the people into the promised land. At the end of the book of Joshua, he says this, Choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in which you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's telling them, what, what are you going to do? Are you going to choose life and choose to serve the Lord or are you going to choose death and follow the Amorites and the kings and rulers of this planet? But you can't choose both. It's either or or. We have this cultural Christianity idea that we can have our foot in both waters and Jesus is saying, no, we can't. And even Peter in Acts, as he's preaching at Pentecost, he says this, Repent and, believe, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a new covenant, New Testament. After Jesus has been dead, buried, raised on the third day, seated at the right hand of the Father, now Peter is saying, choose to repent and follow life or stay in your death. There's no in-between. The gate is narrow that requires repentance for your sin, but you get him and he's enough. Or you can stay after the ways of the world. You can follow the wide path that will lead to destruction. So as this text is reading our mail this morning, the question simply starts to wrestle in all of us, which road are we following? Which gate have we walked into? Did you walk an aisle at one moment, but it really meant nothing for you, that your life has really not changed, that, that you don't actually bow in submission, but you just try to come and accept him and, and work him into your daily life instead of saying, here is everything, Father, do with me what you want. 
regardless of the ramifications? What does it look like in your life? One of the statistics I've, I've cited a couple weeks ago and then uh, Jeff talked about in one of our elders' meetings is, is simply this, the amounts of unbelievers that sit in a church service week after week after week is somewhere roughly around 70%. 70%. And as a pastor, that, like, that rattles me to my core to think that 70% of people are hearing the gospel, but they're so inoculated with it that they said a prayer one time, but nothing in their life resembles anything of following Jesus other than coming to church when it's convenient for them. The 1.7 times a month that the average Christian comes to church and they go, that's it. I've done what Jesus has required of me. And on one hand, I just want to implore you based on the text, that is the wide road that leads to destruction. But then on the other hand, just pastorally, I'm saying, but you're missing the beauty of Christ. You're missing the beauty of what it looks like to have him as your savior. You, you think you've done what's required. And for you, religion and Christianity has almost been boring because that's why you're only coming 1.7 times a month. That's where you're not really engaging or doing what Christ has called you to do. And I want to say, get into the narrow gate because the pasture is great. What Jesus offers us is not just eternal life when we get to heaven, but it's John 17.3, knowing him now. That's what eternal life is. It doesn't start when we get to heaven. It starts now, the intimacy that we have with him. And I promise you, it's hard and difficult. Even this week, the Lord's just been railing me and convicting me on things that I need to grow in. And he's asking me to go into deeper waters with him. And I'll be honest, I'm, I'm pretty scared of what he's asking me to do. I mean, and I'm not trying to get like, oh, what I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm horrible at evangelism. Anybody else? And so I feel like God is, okay, thanks for leaving me high and dry. All of you are like leading a thousand people to Jesus every day, but not me. I can yell at you for an hour, but actually sharing the gospel week in and week out, not in this room, but like as I go is kind of difficult for me. Because as the moment people find out I'm a pastor, typically that's, oh, okay, slide back. And so like Jesus is really pushing me to, hey, share the gospel once a week. And not share the gospel and like, hey, tell them you're a pastor of the church. Check, like. I share Jesus with them. No, like actually teach them that Christ has been crucified, raised on the third day so that they can be right with him. Share the gospel. And, and that's the deeper waters, that, but I guarantee the moment I step out in faith, then Jesus is going to sustain me. I'm going to have a deeper relationship with him because he's, I'm doing what he's asked me to do. And this is the beauty that comes with actually following after him. But we have to ask the question then, if we are dealing with this idea of cultural Christianity, where did it come from? And we see this perfectly. Jesus goes right into it. Uh, we see in verse 15. Because the third point and last point we're going to see this morning is that you are being lied to and led astray. That right now in this cultural day and age, we are being lied to and led astray. And the question is, can we see it? Look with me at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits and grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Excuse me, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus is saying, 
the wide way that leads to destruction is more often than not taught by false prophets, by false teachers. So from this warning in verses 15 through 20, there's a couple conclusions we come to. Number one, that false prophets actually do exist. Right? That false teachers, false prophets actually do exist. Number two, but they look like one of us. They look like one of us. I'll dive into that in a second. Number three, that we can actually spot them. So they do exist, but they're going to be hard to spot because they look like us. But biblically, Jesus gives us tools to spot them. But if we don't, they will, in fact, lead them, lead us to destruction. And so we can see all through Old Testament, New Testament, false prophets, false teachers are constantly something that either Jesus is talking about or the New Testament church is having to deal with. Uh, Later on in Mark 13, Jesus says, false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead us astray, if possible, the elect. So be on guard. I've told you these things before. We see all this through Ephesian elders. We see it in First Timothy. Uh, we see this in Galatians. The Judaizers were coming after the Galatians. So the church in Galatia was formed. Uh, revival had broken out. Many of these Gentiles have been saved. They're following after Jesus. And then these Judaizers are coming in and going, man, praise God that you found Jesus as your Savior. Now you got to be circumcised. Now these Gentiles are going, oh, wait a second. Like that was not part of the deal when I did this, right? Like I gave Jesus my heart. I don't want to do that. And I think we would, as men, we would all agree. Like that, that's too far. So what was happening within the Gentile church, the Galatians that were blowing up and these Judaizers, these false teachers were coming in and saying, yes, follow Jesus, but you also have to follow the ceremonial law. Follow Jesus, but you also have to do everything that's commanded. Even though Jesus said he is the new covenant, he has, uh, he didn't come to abolish, he's fulfilled it. So we're living under new rule and reign. The Judaizers are coming aside and trying to bring them back to their Jewish roots. So the question is not whether we're going to hear the voice of false teachers. We will and we do. Then the question, if that's not the question, the question is whether we can discern that the messages are false. So can we, if, if we're going to hear it, Jesus dealt with it, the early church dealt with it, uh, we can go through heresy after heresy after heresy of church history. If false teachers have always been around, we don't have to spend a ton of time talking about false teachers. What we have to talk about then is simply this, can we discern what's false or not? Can we spot untruths? Uh, can we actually determine what is true or what's not? And we can take this, again, out of the spiritual realm and see we all have discernment about things in our own life and our own careers, right? We all know when things are true, when things are not true. I mean, someone tells us that, yeah, I shot 150 doves yesterday. Probably not true, and you're going to jail. So good luck with that. Um, so, so we all know these things in our own eternal minds. But when we see the scripture and we study the scriptures, do we actually know them well enough to spot false teachers? That's what Jesus is teaching and so let me, uh, uh, let me just throw out two quick names, right? One that's not controversial, one that might be a little controversial. And, and then we'll start talking through some of this because we have to realize, especially in this day and age, there are false teachers and preachers everywhere. Uh, just all cards on the table. Nothing makes me more nervous than when one of you that I love dearly comes up to me and says, Pastor, I found this incredible book. I found this incredible podcast. You have to listen to it my heart skips a beat because I'm going, who is it? Like, who are you listening to? And what are you listening to? And what are they saying? 
Because again, we have to see that they're, she, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They, they look like one of us. They, they can try to fool us, and oftentimes they do because they wear suits and they have incredibly massive ministries and they're always smiling and looking so happy. Mr. Joel Osteen, right? False teacher, through and through. If you actually study and dive into what he's teaching, it is a Christless exposition on nothing. It is do the best you can do, and that's all that it's going to require. But I'm going to grow this thing so that I can have as much as I want. And so, so we see this, and it's, and it's pretty obvious if you actually start listening in to what he's teaching. But maybe some of the, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, a month ago, or whatever. Um, some of the more subtle ones that are really coming in our day and age would be someone like an Andy Stanley that has a pedigree from Charles Stanley, conservative resurgence, incredible thing, but the more he starts to teach and preach about the acceptance and caving in the gospel and, and maybe the scripture, and here, here's how you can always tell. Let me come over here real quick. Here's how you can always tell someone's drifting into a liberalness, is that they start asking questions and start of outright saying it. So Andy Stanley is never gonna say, I don't believe the Bible to be true, but he's gonna ask really good questions like, well, maybe Jesus didn't actually mean what he said there. Or maybe the Old Testament doesn't really mean much for us today. So he's saying it without saying it. He's asking questions. And in this cultural day and age and moment where there at North Point is becoming more and more affirming in our backyard, we can see that they've caved, that this false teaching has begun. And for me, I mean, it's a grievous thing to watch. I don't, I don't say that with joy or delight. But it, we see this happening over and over and over again. And we can even talk about, and I'm not going to use names on this one because uh, this person has come out to repent since this has happened. Uh, but even some of the things that me and Robert have to talk about on song choice and song selection. Because there's a really famous group that sings and, and, and really puts out really great music. But the leader of this group, the leader of this institution, which again has repented, that's why I'm not using the name, said that Jesus was not God that he was a man in right standing with God. And because of that, uh, he did all the miracles that he did, not because he was God, but because he was a man in right standing with God. Therefore, if you don't sin, you can do the same things that Jesus did. You just have to be perfect like Jesus was perfect. So within that, I mean, the, the, the heresies that this dude's spewing is ridiculous. One, he's saying Jesus is not God. He's doubting the divinity of Jesus. And if Jesus was not God, then the cross means nothing. If Jesus does not a fully God, fully man, went to the cross, died for our sins, then all of this is for nothing. And two, he's doubting the depravity of man. He's saying that you can be sinless. Jesus is sinless, and you can be sinless. Okay, well, if that's the truth, then why did Jesus die on the cross? If all of us could achieve sinlessness just by hard work and effort, then if I was Jesus, I'd go, I'm, I'm not dying then. If they can do it, they just have to work hard, then, then why do I have to die on the cross? Y'all just do it. So, so even within that, it sounds good. It's like, man, I, w- I want to be empowered. I want to do the things that Jesus did. So let me work really hard to be sinless so that I could see the same miracles that Jesus saw. And they get this massive following that's taking place, all rooted in something that's just not true. And so we see this happening over and over and over again. And what we typically see is that these false teachers grow these incredible ministries. I mean, they're massive. And so we, our pragmatist mind naturally drifts to, well, they must be doing something right because look at the size of the church. 
Like they must be doing something right. Look at the influence they're having around. They must be doing something right. But friends, that's just not true. Faithfulness does not always mean massive crowds. And Jesus, even when his crowds got massive, he sent most of them away. And when hard times came, what happened to the massive crowds? They shrank down to 11. So let us not be entertained or or led astray by crowds because crowds mean nothing. So then, how do we know? Because we can all be led astray before we know it because things look good, they they act right, they, they just feels right, but before we know it, we're somewhere we we're not supposed to be. Like, like here, here's, a, here's a really dumb example, if you'll let me just confess something that I did that was really stupid. So when I was, uh, I don't know how old we were, and my wife's teaching kids, so I can't give her, I'm going to look at Becca. Becca, you know how old we were? No, I don't either. Um, sometime many moons ago, uh, we were church planting, dirt poor, someone had given us a $250 gift card. So we had enough money to get a little uh, bed and breakfast, and we had this $250 gift card. So we went up to the mountains of Asheville. Uh, We were going to have this little retreat. It was going to be great. Our kids were little. It was one of our first getaways. And so someone had told us, you need to go to the Omni Grove Inn. Anyone ever been there? No? Okay. I'll just, I'll just pray and we'll get out of here. Um, go to the Omnigrove Inn. It's going to be great. So we get there. We sit down. I look at the menu. I'm going, oh, man, we can't afford this. Like, we've been lied to. All I have is a 250 gift card. That's supposed to last us like six days or five days, whatever it was. We got to go. So the waiter comes over, and he's explaining the menu. And like, okay, uh, we'll, we'll just do this. So I ordered a steak, and it was probably to this date one of the best steaks I've ever had. But I'm still salty about this whole experience. So I didn't like the steak. Uh, but he said, okay, what about your two sides? And I thought I read the menu that everything was a la carte. At that time, I probably didn't know what that meant. I probably ordered a fillet minion and, and like, didn't know what was happening. So uh, I, I, he was like, oh, this is great, like two sides. I'm like, okay, well, I'll have this and this. And he said, okay, what about your salad? I was like, oh, man, I did, I did not see this on the menu, that all of this comes with it. Like the, the price is getting a lot more affordable at this moment. So I ordered the salad. He's like, came back. He said, okay, what about your dessert? What desserts would you like? And I'm like, this is great. Like this $70 steak, now that all of this is included, is actually a pretty fair deal. And then we get the bill. That dude hustled us, all of it. I mean, that literally, that gift card that we had for the entire week spent, was spent on this one dinner because it truly was a la carte, all of it. But he was so convincing in his ex- explanation of what was happening, and he looked good, and I believed him, and he hustled me. And I still tipped the guy. I don't know why I did. Silly example, I know, but that's how quickly we can be led astray, that we read it with our own eyes, and we know the truth, but they can be so convincing and so loving, and so compassionate, and what else? And what else? That we just buy into the moment, the atmosphere. I mean, we were sitting on this balcony overlooking the mountains. It was beautiful. We got caught up in the moment, and then we got in trouble. And church, this is where a lot of us have become, a lot of where the church is, that we get caught up in the moment, and the lies, and the manipulation, but it all looks so good, and right, and perfect, that we never once doubt for a moment that we're being deceived and lied to. So how then can we protect ourselves? As we start to wrap up, we have to know our Bibles. Church, we have to know our Bibles. We cannot be lied to or deceived to if we know the truth that's being quoted. 
We have to know our Bibles. We will be led astray if we're not spending disciplined time in the Word. The whole point of course seminars that we do on Sunday mornings is so that you know the Word of God so that you will not be led astray. And we've talked about this over and over and over again. The biblical illiteracy rate that we're dealing with in our culture is just mind-baffling. That most of the people, and even the, I've talked about this a few times, most Christians, not non-believers, most Christians think that Billy Graham wrote the Sermon on the Mount. So the thing that we've been studying over the last couple months, they think that Billy Graham wrote it. I mean, just the things that we can quote, the statistics that we can pull out, that God helps those who help themselves. 82% of the world believes that. 81% of the church believes that. That is a message that is fully compromised to the gospel. If we could help ourselves, then why did Christ have to come? So we see how inconsistent we can be simply because we don't know the scriptures. We have to avoid false teachers and false prophets that stay away from things as holiness, righteousness, justice, or the wrath of God. If you are sitting under, if you're hearing a teacher or you're following a podcast, if you're reading a book and they are minimizing the pursuit of holiness, of putting sin to death in your life and becoming more like Christ, or minimizing the fact that hell is a real place where we're going to go unless Christ saves us and redeems us, I'm telling you that's a false prophet. As a false teacher that's belittling the gospel. If he, second, if he avoids preaching or teaching on the doctrine of the final judgment, again, that is a false teacher, that hell is a real place, and it is forever. I will draw that line in the sand, the annihilist view, where there will be one day that hell ceases to exist. That's not true. I cannot see that within the scripture. So in this regard, two of America's most flourishing cults, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, reject the Bible's doctrine of hell in favor of a less stringent and less offensive approach. So we have to see that there's teaching happening all around us that will reject the teaching of hell. Third, the false prophets fail to emphasize the fallness and depravity of mankind. If you're hearing a message that's pumping you up on how good you are and that God is lucky to have you in his life, I can promise you that's not true. I can promise you that that belittles the nature of the gospel. That is just not true. And fourth, false prophets de-emphasize the substitutionary death of atonement of Christ on the cross. If we don't see that the cross is necessary for salvation and for life, then that is a false teacher that's not teaching the wholeness of the gospel And so we could go on and on and on about this, but uh, the second part, Jesus talks about not only what they teach, but more importantly, the fruit of what they're teaching, the fruit of their life. So first, we have to watch closely those that are teaching and leading. We have to understand what it is about their life, not just their stage persona. Does that make sense? That everyone can look good on a stage, but we have to understand who they are outside of the pulpit, outside of their life. And we all know that fruit takes time to develop. This is why you'll hear me often say, read dead guys. Study dead guys. If you want to read and study and grow in your faith, maybe don't go to the latest novel or latest book written by these local pastors, or not local, but like pastors right now in our time. But go read some dead guys that finished well that there's not going to be any scandal that's coming out because they've been dead for 100 years. Those are the safe books to read because that's true. And their life true finished well. They did not come to find out that they were a false prophet. I mean, we've all seen, uh, I mean, here's just one that even hit me to my core. Uh, What about the ministry of Ravi Zacharias? I mean, that you see him pass away after, uh, I mean, I learned so much apologetically from this man and then him to pass away and go, oh my gosh. You didn't believe anything that you were saying. 
Like you did a good work over here, but your life was bearing zero fruit. You, again, you had global success, but your heart was wicked, man. And that was a hard pill for me to swallow to get over the fact that someone that had influenced me. So, so maybe I'm talking out of being burnt by guys too many times, but, but I just feel more safe and comfortable reading dead guys because there's no surprises, right? They're not coming from the grave to say, just kidding. So you have to understand the fruit. You have to see their lives. And Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. But false prophets who arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing them upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality because of the way of the truth has been blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit with you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Here's what Peter's getting at. Yes, listen to their words, but look at their actions. And quickly, let me just go over the things to watch for that Peter tells us. He, he really gets it down to three categories. The first category that Peter says, watch for these behaviors in a prophet, because if this is trending this way, chances are they're a false prophet, is pride or defying authority. We see this in verse 1, that they denied the master who brought them. If a prophet cannot submit to those around them, if they cannot walk into the authority under Jesus and the men around them, then chances are they're leading people away to a false prophet. We see this in verse 2, sensuality, which typically means sexual sin. Uh, verse 2 says, many will follow their sensuality. This is what we saw happen with Ravi Zacharias, that, that false prophets are going to be led away, uh, not only in their pride and arrogance, but also in a sexual nature. And then three, and we see this, everywhere. Peter talks about verse 3, and their greed will exploit you. This is what we see to be the prosperity gospel. I can just tell you this. Can I just be, I mean, here we are. If, if a prophet, if a preacher has a private jet, he is a false prophet. There's just that good blanket statement. That's a rule to live by. If he's too good to fly with sinners in an airplane, then he is a false prophet and do not listen to him. Is that just a fair thing to say? I've never said that publicly, but there we go. That, that just should not be the case. You should not have that much wealth and that greed that's going to ruin your ministry. So again, Peter's description relates to greed, sensuality, and pride, or another way to say it, money, sex, and power. That this is what these false prophets are actually after. They're not about growing the gospel. They're not about growing people. They're about growing in their influence and in their authority uh, and their sexual gratification and in their money. This is an easy way for us to tell the fruit that will start to permeate in these prophets, but it takes time. But we cannot control that. What we can control is do we know the scriptures? And can we sit under teaching, sit under radio ministry, sit under social media as these things are being posted and things are being shared and going, that's not true. No, that's not true. That contradicts Second Peter 2. That contradicts what Jesus said here. That just, that just can't be true. And if we can't, Friends, we're going to be led away into somewhere where we will end up in destruction. So, as we begin to close, let, let, let me end here. I, I know I got on a, a little rant there at the end. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. It needed to be said. But <clears throat> when, when you, when, when I, I mean, I've used this phrase before. Let me just say this one thing. Uh, does anybody know what stolen valor is? Right, So like military guys that have bled and died and sacrificed everything for their country, when they see men and women wearing their uniform that didn't actually go to battle, that didn't actually fight the same battle that they fought, that, that's called stolen valor. It's actually a, a federal offense. 
for me being a pastor, a preacher of the gospel, when I see things that I would call stolen valor, when I see guys preaching a false gospel so they can get their own selfish gain, it just brings a, a righteous anger in me that really wants to bring harm to this person. Not because like, I'm, an, I'm not of an angry guy, but because they're leading tens of thousands of souls to destruction and they're laughing about it as they're counting their money. And for me, that's a case of stolen valor that just gets me fired up. Because we're not talking about like little things at stake here, right? We're talking about people's eternal soul at stake. And so as a pastor, the preacher of the good news of the gospel, I, I take those charges of false prophets very serious. I, I don't name drop just for the fun of it. I've done my research, I've thought through, I've prayed through and considered, and I've grievously come to this point where, man, here's the people we have to warn our people about because they're going to lead them away to destruction. So if I get a little amped up in that section, that's why, because there's tens of thousands of souls on the line. Does that make sense? So all that being said, going back to Jesus as he started this, there's the narrow gate and there's the wide gate. And for you, that's just the question this morning. I mean, Jesus, in his response, teed up a perfect response time for us. Are you, did you walk through, have you considered, have you counted the cost and walked through the narrow gate that has gave you salvation? Or Have you walked through the easy gate, the wide road, the comfortable road that, yeah, I love Jesus, but I also love all these other things. I love Jesus, but but I'm not actually going to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. I still want to hold on to my possessions, to my things, to my career, to my this, to my that. I'm not not trusting him with everything, just almost everything. And Jesus is saying, if, if it's Jesus plus anything else, that's not going through the narrow gate. Because the narrow gate requires you to drop everything so that you can walk through it. So my question simply is that, as we pray, as we end, I want you to consider, not in a fear-mongering way, but in a grace-driven way, have you dropped everything to follow after Christ? Has your life, life been incredibly different after you followed him? Has he led you into deeper waters? Has he asked you to do incredibly difficult things for his namesake that you've seen the fruit from? Or has your life just pretty much stayed the same? There's been uh, no growth in you, no developing you. And, and I would say, man, brother, sister, consider whether you're actually in the narrow road or the wide road. Because the wide road will lead to destruction. The wide road will lead to destruction. And we have to be clear on that. So would you pray with me? And Father, as we wrestle with the text of this morning is Jesus' words to us. God, I pray that, that your spirit would just be active in this room right now. As we consider what, what road are we on, what, what door did we walk through, what gate have we gone through, the, the narrow straight one where we laid everything down at the feet of Jesus and walked through that on our right hand we see the total depravity of our sin, and on our left hand at the gatepost we see the mourning and the weeping of that sin. And through that, we walk through the gate into the green pastures of your salvation. That we understand that there's no way we could do that on our own power, but it's only through the cross that we can walk through. Or are we presently on the wide road? 
or presently on the wide road that's going to lead to destruction. That, that yeah, we said a prayer and we did a thing way back in the day and we raised our hand, but, but there was no real life change. There was no really counting the cost. There was no dropping everything down so that we could follow after him. None of that was evident. We just did what we were asked or expected to do. And for those people in this room, Father, I just, I just pray salvation for them. That the pastures on the other side of the gate are beautiful. And the presence and the power that comes having the Spirit reside in us is like none other. And the fact that we can stand here, those that have walked through the narrow gate, and say with a 100% clarity that we know we are spending eternity with Him forever. So that's what I desire for all of us in this room. And so God, for those that have maybe been convicted right now in this moment that, that they don't know, they, they aren't 100% sure where their eternity is going to be, God, would you, would you lead them to you? Would they this morning grab someone with them, come talk to me, come talk to somebody, and say, I've counted the cost, I'm dropping my baggage, and I'm walking through the narrow gate. And would we celebrate that? And then for all of us, God, would we have our noses in the book? Would we be so grateful that you've given us your perfect word? Would we study it and would we know it so that we can spot false teachers and false doctrines all around us? Would we study the fruit of those teaching the word and not be led astray? And so God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. I pray this, in this moment for those considering the, the question of the narrow road or the wide road. And Father, would you give the confidence to them to respond in the proper way? Oh, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?